0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: This is the Conversation
0: Hour. On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria.
2: I want you to imagine this. You wake up in the middle of the night, pitch black, and you can't move. Your body just won't respond. You're thinking about rolling over or or trying to sit up. Nothing happens. And while all that's going on, while you're frozen, you realise that there's someone else or... Maybe something else in the room with you, an evil presence that's watching you. My name's Nick Healy. I'm in Shepparton in the Golden Valley, filling in for Rochelle for the next couple of days. And I wasn't describing the latest horror movie that's just out for Halloween. That's actually what people, some people, who have sleep paralysis experience. In this modern world with all the distractions, all the worries, everything else that's going on, sleep can feel like a really precious commodity and that's even before we factor in the many and varied sleep disorders you might be experiencing. It is not surprising to me that nearly half of all Aussie adults report having problems with their sleep. If you're trying to work out how much sleep is enough, how to get a better night's rest, or you're finding it hard to get the right answers on how sleep disorders work. You're not alone. Everyone, it seems, at the moment has an opinion or a remedy or a hack or even an app that's meant to help you snooze. So today I thought we could bust a few myths. We could talk about what actually affects our sleep and how it affects us and, yes, dive deep into some of the sleep disorders like sleep apnea that can plague your nocturnal downtime. If you've got some questions for today's experts, please call. Uh, We'll just say do be aware we can't give you personalised advice. Your first point of call for anything serious should be your GP. But also get in touch and tell me about your average night's sleep. Do you have your own technique for putting your head down and dozing off straight away? Do you experience a sleep disorder? On
0: ABC Radio, Melbourne
2: and Victoria.
1: This is the Conversation Hour.
2: So if I asked you how much sleep we need, uh, chances are good you're going to say, oh, you need eight hours. It's a common bit of wisdom where's it come from how true is it and what actually happens to you if you don't end up getting that full eight hours now professor bob adams is the deputy chair of the sleep health foundation also with flinders university professor eight hours is that true do we all need eight hours
3: hi we probably don't all need eight hours the amount (laughs) that you need is a simple question it's it's enough to make you feel good (laughs) so where does eight hours come from There is an average, and and most people, you know, if you give them the chance to sleep uninhibited and without any other problems or or demands, will sleep somewhere between seven and eight hours. If it's Uh, intense, if it's a personal
2: thing, though, sorry, I was just thinking, if sleep is personal, you said it's what makes us feel good, does that mean there's, I guess, an amount that's right just for you?
3: Probably. For most people, yes. Um, having said that, the body demands and needs a certain amount of sleep to make everything work properly. So there are very, 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 very few people who can get away with four or five hours sleep. Uh, And there's a small number who need longer longer time than that. But most fit into that seven to eight hours period if you get the chance.
2: What happens if we're not getting enough sleep? What actually happens to our mind and our
3: body? Well, I mean, one night's bad sleep just makes you feel lousy the next day, and you know we've all felt like that. Um, and I think the important thing to remember is that that you know one night one or two nights' bad sleep is not the end of the known universe. and <laughs> that, and and that we will, you know most people will be okay after a night or two and we'll go back to having a good night's sleep. Um, and the other thing to remember about it is that that sleep's one of the few things in life that doesn't get better if you try harder at it. Um, you know we've all sort of got to go to sleep got to go to sleep and that tends to put things off but if we don't go to sleep over a long period of time um, sleep's important for making our you know, brain work properly um, seems to clear out the accumulated um, strain of the day and uh, let memories work best and, and it works best for our alertness and our, our ability to, to function properly with our brain it's also really important for um, what we call metabolic functions so making sure that our muscles get rest and relaxed making sure that we we sort of process and metabolize sugars and, and other things to get that sort of part of our body working properly as well essentially every bit of your body needs rest and sleep for it to function at its best
2: what are the long-term effects of not getting enough sleep? And I mean, I mean profound, long-term, whether we're calling it insomnia or disrupted sleep, what's it actually do
3: to us? Well, the, the, the jury is probably a little bit out on exactly what happens with that. Um, I think sleep disorders like sleep apnea, where you're not breathing properly at night or have disrupted breathing at night and your oxygen levels are going down and you're getting mm. a lot of strain given to your autonomic nervous system, We know that's associated with, you know, a number of long-term problems uh, related to cardiac disease, um, strokes, diabetes, hypertension, um, and also probably, uh, but the link there is less well-defined, mental functioning and and, uh, cognition as you get older. Insomnia is a little less clear. Uh, Certainly, short sleep seems to be uh, an issue. So, if you're not sleeping very long over a long period of time, that affects your body and your brain insomnia the perception that you're not sleeping well or having problems waking up early um little unclear over the long term exactly what that's doing to you it's probably not good for you just staying on
2: insomnia you know, we kind of use it as a shorthand for i couldn't sleep but my understanding is insomnia can be either hard to get to sleep or waking up early
3: yeah the the definition clinical definition of chronic insomnia uh, is pretty precise actually. It's, right. it's difficulty um, initiating or getting to sleep uh, that takes you know longer than half an hour, um, or waking up during the night and having difficulty getting back to sleep, or waking up too early um, and having difficulty getting back to sleep, plus having you know impairments in daytime functioning. And that can be your alertness, your brain, it can be your body not working properly. It can also be your mood as well. And perhaps the, the strongest association of chronic insomnia is with mood and mental health. Uh, and we know that insomnia often precedes depressive depressive symptoms and depression. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that poor sleep may in fact not be a consequence of depression or poor mood but may be, um a harbinger and a, at least a canary in the coal mine about your mood maybe maybe having problems so if your sleep shifts towards insomnia it's worth thinking about getting that managed early on because it can be an, a, an early trigger for low mood and and your mood going down and becoming depressed Professor
2: Bob Adams, Deputy Chair of the Sleep Health Foundation, stay on the line for a second because I'm finding it's fascinating, but Tony from Elston Wick has called in. Uh, Tony, talk to me about what was happening with your sleep.
0: um, I was working on a remote mine site over in West Australia and the shifts were 28 days straight, 12 hours a day. And my sleep uh, was absolutely shattered. Uh, But uh, I'll never do that again, never. 10 hours is fine, but not 12
2: Tony, where were you working in WA? Out of interest,
0: it was a lithium mine. I won't say any more than that. But seven hundred k's north of, northeast of Perth.
2: And was was work kind of, I, I guess, on top of what this was doing to your sleep? I mean, I know that yeah. when you're doing your sort of work, you're meant to be doing the drug tests all the time. Were they checking in well, on how right. you were doing in terms of sleep?
0: No, not at all. Zero.
2: Zero. 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 <laughs>
0: Tony, you thank you. To a drug, to do a drug, random drug test in the morning to make sure you're below the level. That's fine. Um, no alcohol. But uh, the sleep pattern deprivation was a uh, major concern for me.
2: Tony, thank you so much for calling in. And back to you, Professor Adams. I mean, in many conversations I've had where we talk about random drug testing in, in workplaces like Tony's been through, invariably someone will say, well, why aren't we checking in on people's sleep? That has a profound impact on safety as well.
3: Absolutely. Shift work is hard. Uh, shift work is tough on your body um, and particularly tough on your sleep. And those, those sorts of uh, shifts that your caller was describing um, are thankfully much less common these days as they should be uh, because we know that poor sleep, um, particularly having been up for a long period of time, so if you don't sleep for you know, 20 hours or so, um your function is about the same as being 0.05 or higher with alcohol um, And so the need to think about whether someone has had enough sleep and whether the shifts are designed to let people get enough sleep, is really important and I mean there are some legislative requirements around that these days but I think you know businesses that and and industries and I work in one of them um, <laughs> that really needs to think about how well we uh, <laughs> how well we're doing with um, helping people with sleep and the other thing about shift workers is um, again a lot of them have um, clinical sleep disorders that can be managed but their symptoms are often attributed to the fact that they do shifts and that's bad for their sleep Uh, and so both clinicians doctors myself and and the people Hmm. think oh i'm sleeping badly and i feel dreadful because i work shifts and that's that's to be understandable but in actual fact quite a significant number have unrecognized and undiagnosed sleep conditions that can be managed and can improve their sleep
2: so is routine important for sleep? like does it matter that you are going to sleep roughly the same time every night? Does our body have a rhythm?
3: Body absolutely has a rhythm, we call it the circadian clock, um, and your body sticks to it. Pretty much every cell in your body has a body has a clock, um, and its functions are determined by the time of day and the time of clock. Um, and your sleep is a really important regulator of that. Um, and so the routine is important for, A, helping you get to sleep. But increasingly, it's recognized that irregularity, so when you're sleeping, as much as how, probably even more so than how much you sleep, is more important for a lot of health, especially things like heart disease, blood pressure, mm-hmm. uh, diabetes, those sorts of significant, severe you know, problems that people can have Um, Sleep irregularity seems to be a closer link with that than the the amount of time you spend sleeping.
2: Bob, stay on the line because Joy from Dalesford. Joy, tell me about your sleep. You've never had a lot of luck sleeping, have you?
4: Not really, no, that's true. Look, I I try to um, go to bed at the same time each night, but I take melatonin before I go to sleep. I know there's been some discussion in the last month about its effectiveness but I just still take it and then I wake up in the middle of the night and take, um, it's like a magnesium mega product for night. But I think it's a real issue for so many people. If you have a discussion with people, they'll, they'll, so many people will say, look, I just didn't sleep well and I teach and the students say the same thing and I say, oh, well, you should have texted me at three because I was awake wake through. So, Nick, I think it's, a, 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 it's a, a really major problem in Australian society and everyone's so busy and then they've got traffic to deal with and a whole lot of issues in their lives. But even if I had a perfect life, if I wasn't working and I was on a desert island, I still would find it really hard to sleep.
2: Joy, I'm so glad you called in and thank <laughs> you. And, 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 Bob, you know, we hear about melatonin, we hear about magnesium. Do these supplements have an impact on people's sleep?
3: Melatonin is a really important hormone naturally occurring in your body um, that everyone um, has. That is usually sort of triggered, uh, if you like. Its 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 increase it drives the the body clock towards sleep. Um, it's it's not a thing that puts you to sleep, but it's the thing. That it's, it's if you think of a, a, a foot race, it's the starting gun rather than running the race. Um, And it it tends to go up about 16 or so hours after you first get exposed to light in the morning. So Uh. light is one of the main things that drives your circadian clock. There's a few other things like when you eat and how much exercise. Um, But the the light exposure, especially in the morning, is really important. And adequate light exposure during the day is really important to maintain a good circadian rhythm. Um, Melatonin in some people can help you know, with that timing of sleep. And it has a mild sort of soporific effect on people sometimes, and that's why it gets used for things like jet lag, because it can help with that.
2: What about magnesium? Because I've seen that a lot of gym bros love mag- magnesium. They say it's a, a great way to sleep at night and heal your muscles while you're doing it.
3: Uh, uh, yeah. The, <laughs> magnesium often gets given for, for leg cramps. Um, the, the research evidence for it is not great. Um, it has to be said um but some people who certainly find yeah you know, they have leg cramps seem to get some benefit from from taking magnesium um as a as a sleeping tablet if you like um evidence is not so great without without any problems with their people's legs and that sort of irritating feeling that you can get again if people have genuine problems with what we call restless legs there are other ways of approaching that different medications um and iron levels are actually quite important in in reducing some of those uncomfortable feelings in people's legs
2: and look i will just say as always um if you're thinking of any of these things make sure you're talking to your gp um and getting some proper advice before you're grabbing some random supplement. sarah on the line from mount macedon um sarah tell me about your son
4: Oh, yes. Yeah. So he's going to a uh, high school in Matherton and they actually start at 10 a.m. Um, and I think the philosophy is that as you get older, you go to bed later and you function better in the morning. Uh, sorry, in, later in the day. And it's just been
2: great. Like it really does. You've seen an impact. You've seen it helping him.
4: Yes. Yes. He, you know, there's no stress in the morning, waking up if you've had a restless night's sleep. Um, yeah, it's amazing. I think they could do it more often. <laughs>
2: Well, back to Professor Bob Adams. I mean, we often hear that young people need so much sleep, you know, let them lie in, let them have a break. You know, their bodies are changing, their bodies are growing. I mean, from what I've never heard of a school starting later to make sure they get more sleep, but it seems to make a lot of sense to me.
3: Yep, adolescents and teenagers have sort of two things going on with their sleep, I think. The first is, as you say, they probably need a bit more sleep, Um, than they will as they get become adults because they are growing and it's important to get that amount of sleep. The other thing is there's a bit of a tendency towards what we call delayed sleep phase. So that body clock, again, tends to push out a bit later uh, and they they end up going to sleep a bit later and want to get up a bit later. Um, And um, whether that's partly related to how much light they're getting or partly related to being adolescent and teenagers... Um, it's probably a combination of the two but it tends to mean that they go to bed a bit later, they wake up a bit later and it would be good if the schools were actually often starting a bit later because you often find a lot of teenagers, I think um, feeling a bit sleepy and underslept first thing in the mornings
2: You've mentioned light a couple of times and how much are screens impacting that? Let's let's dive into the, the great screen time, the great blue light debate <laughs>
3: Light at night, and that can be from screens, (laughs) but it can also just be from how much light you've got in the room, um, seems to have an impact on how well people sleep. Now, the question of the the impact of screens per se um, may have been overstated by in some ways, uh, but it probably is not a good idea to be on your phone um, late into the evening. And there's two two aspects to that one is the light coming from the screen the other is the sort of stuff that you're scrolling through huh because um, obviously if you're you're uh, scrolling through world events at the moment um it's probably not a relaxing pre-sleep behavior
2: so the doom scroll phenomenon is real
3: yeah I mean, anything that tends to fire your mind up before you're going to sleep will not help if you're Prone to not being able to get to sleep easily, and uh, I think when your previous callers pointed out, a lot of people have problems with their sleep, and that's maybe forty percent, fifty percent of the population are probably not sleeping as well as they'd like to.
2: And I mean, we've got to turn our brains off a little bit. And you know, you'll often hear people say, "Oh, there's relaxation techniques, or here's a great app that'll help you fall asleep." Should it be something we're just doing naturally? Like, can we train ourselves to go to sleep better?
5: I
3: think the the relaxation stuff certainly helps for many people right and and any anything that makes you part of your routine that, as you say, tends to calm your brain down um, and and push it towards being relaxed is a good thing. Um, if If you're not sleepy though, you'll still struggle to get to sleep. Uh, and one of the things that that some people do, you know, understandably, if they find they're not sleeping very well, is just spend longer time in bed because they think, "Oh, I need to spend more time in bed because that'll give me more sleep." Mm-hmm. Uh, and what often happens for some people there is that the the link between uh, bed and sleep gets broken, and your brain become and your brain and your body get used to thinking you're going to bed is when you wake up, uh, and it becomes more. <sighs> Is this what we mean when we talk about sleep hygiene? One of the th- part of it is sleep hygiene, yes. Right. Um, but one of the, the therapies for chronic insomnia is what we call cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia. Uh, and one of the, the major parts of that, the behavioural aspect, is actually in the first phases of it, limiting the amount of time you spend in bed so that by the time you go into sleep, you're actually sleepy. Uh, and that sort of helps condition our our brain and our body to go into sleep when we go to bed, Rather than waking up or Professor. being alerted,
2: yeah, being alerted and then having that brain turn-on function. I think anyone yeah. who's had to get up and do a a quick loo break in the middle of the night, you kind of in the back of your mind think, don't wake up properly. Don't start yep. thinking. Just get this done and go straight back to bed and we should be okay. Professor Bob Adams, thank you. I've taken up a lot of your time, but I really appreciate your expertise. Um, the professor is the deputy chair of the Sleep Health Foundation. Plenty of people texting and calling. Love to hear about it. If you've got things you need to know about sleep, we'll try and get you some answers. If you want to share your experiences of how you get a good night's sleep, I'd love to know about that as well. We're going to be talking further into sleep disorders as well during the show. I'm
6: sure so
1: this is the conversation
2: hour. Slept away. We are talking sleep, and Rich on the text line saying something very close to my heart. Rich saying, Exercise is so important for sleep and zero alcohol as well. When you're over 50, Rich, I remember in my younger days being able to just roll into bed after a big night and no exercise at all and just sleep like I was dead. It was fabulous, and it's become a lot. Harder. Now, lots of life changes impact the way we sleep. One surprising life experience that can change it is menopause. Now, Dr. Sarah White is the CEO of Women's Health Group, Gene Hales. And Sarah, Ger, good morning to you. You've actually got a new report out recently that's been looking at this link.
1: We certainly have, Nick. It's a really, um, it's actually quite a common thing for women who are going through menopause to have sleep disturbances. But we've just completed the National Women's Health Survey, which looked at a random sample of women across Australia. And in fact, very few of them recognised that sleep disturbance was as a result of menopause. So we've got a big gap between what women know and, and actually what's impacting them at menopause.
2: What is the impact? What happens to a night's sleep?
1: Well, it's very much around sleep disturbance and it may not, so menopause is a time when the hormones go down, that estrogen, but um, what we're finding is that women are often waking up because they get hot flushes at night. So they're getting these things called night sweats. So it could be the hormones going down or it could be women waking up as a result of having these awful, awful night sweats. It's interesting you said
2: they're not recognising that linkage. Is it just because so much is happening?
1: I think that's part of it for sure and we often see women you know at around about the age of 51 is the average age for menopause we see women are managing you know what they have to do for the kids on the weekend they're often looking after elderly parents Mm. the caring burden falls on women so that um, you know that racing brain when you're trying to go to sleep and you're trying to work out whether you've got everything organized for school tomorrow and work tomorrow that could be part of it as well. But it's so important for us to actually know what the real reason is so that we can address it.
2: And how would we begin to address that in this situation, Sarah?
1: Well, I think it's about going to talk to your GP if you're having things like hot flushes and night sweats because they might be able to help you with menopause hormone therapy, for example. It's also talking to or going to places like the Sleep Health Foundation for information on resetting whether it's your sleep hygiene or your circadian rhythms or or just working through some of that anxiety and racing brain that you might be having.
2: Sarah you must be I guess concerned over the the longer term impact I mean we were just hearing about what lack of sleep can do what it can mean for heart disease what it can mean for day-to-day health when we're talking about already the body changes coming through menopause the compound must be really worrying.
1: Ah, oh, spot on, Nick. The compound is a real problem because once people go, once women go through menopause, they have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease anyway. Mm. So you put sleep on top of that. Um, menopause is a time when a lot of women have uh, affected moods and their emotional health, emotional well-being is affected. So add poor sleep onto that; it's a really big problem and critical for women to sort out.
2: And you were suggesting they should talk to a GP initially.
1: Talk to a GP initially to manage some of the the symptoms we really know are caused by those decreasing hormones. So menopause, hormone therapy might be right for you. It might be something else. Sort out those night sweats and then places like the Sleep Health Foundation or a sleep physician can be really helpful.
2: All right, Sarah, I really appreciate your time today. It's an interesting link that uh, I think you've done some amazing research on. Dr. Sarah White is the CEO of uh, Women's Health Group, Jean Hales, menopause and sleep being profoundly connected. I'd love to hear from you. We want to talk about techniques for sleeping. want to try and answer some of your questions as well. And yes, we are going to look a little broader into some of the major sleep disorders. I noticed the text saying, can we hear more about that being unable to move when you wake up feeling like something's in your room. I have it very often. We will be talking about that a little bit later in the show. Last night, I didn't
0: get to sleep this at is all. the
1: conversation hour. No, no, I
2: lay awake it came up in the conversation we were just having with Professor Bob, but sleep apnea is another really common sleep disorder. I think one that comes with a lot. Of misconceptions. Now, Garen Hamilton is the director of sleep research at Monash Health. Uh, Garin, sleep apnea. What's the formal definition here?
5: Uh, well, sleep apnea is basically um, a condition where you obstruct your breathing uh, during the night uh, while sleeping. Now, this is something that we all do occasionally. So, we define. Someone is having obstructive sleep apnea when they have a certain uh, amount of obstructions per night, uh, defined per hour of sleep. Um, and then generally also in addition with some type of consequence or symptoms related to that. Because uh, if there's mild obstruction, that particularly isn't always necessarily associated with, with symptoms. Wait, what so, sort
2: of um, What sort of symptoms?
5: Uh, well, the the commonest symptom that people will initially be aware of is is snoring because um, often loud snoring goes along with sleep apnea. Now, it's not universal. You can you can have sleep apnea without um, significant snoring, but oh. they very commonly go together. Um, and also um, the, the next commonest thing we have people complain about is that they wake the next day feeling tired and unrefreshed. Sleep is not restorative. They may be tired or even drowsy during the daytime and that can have a major impact on uh, how someone functions during the day they may have need for naps they may fall asleep uh, accidentally they may have impaired concentration productivity at work even if it's severe enough difficulty driving and and um, operating you know, heavy machinery etc
2: how serious is sleep apnea
5: so, um, so, so it's, a, it's a spectrum, basically. So at, at, at the mild end, it, it isn't necessarily too serious and people can potentially live with it. But at the very severe and extreme end, um, it, it is a, a highly serious disease. So the most extreme form people um, uh, develop uh, even sort of hypoventilation and respiratory and heart failure. Um, that's that's not very common luckily but the more sort of garden variety sleep apnea if it's in the severe range is associated with um, hypertension with increased Mm. risk for cardiovascular disease and stroke um, and even cognitive impairment as we get older so so it is potentially quite serious also mood disorders are increased um, with sleep apnea as well as other uh, sleep problems like insomnia so so it depends a lot on the severity of the condition, but it's definitely a, both a common and potentially serious uh, disease.
2: I've got to ask, I know it's going to sound like the stupidest question you've been asked, but is it true people can just stop breathing and not wake up, like you can actually die from sleep apnea?
5: So, uh, so, yeah, n- no in that acute sense. Good. So the, the, brain, the brain is very good at protecting us. So, as I said, we all occasionally do this. It's something that we all do from time to time. So, um, but, you know, a partner obviously will often find it quite frightening if they see their, uh, you know, their loved one beside and suddenly stop breathing for a period and uh, what might be 10 or 15 seconds can seem like an eternity and then they suddenly start up again. So it's more what we worry about really is it's the longer-term consequences um, of doing this repetitively uh, rather than, um, uh, you know, someone b- besides you just sort of stopping and then starting again.
2: And when you say sleep apnea, I imagine someone treating it via a CPAP machine. Is that the only treatment?
5: No, it's not the only treatment. It, it's certainly uh, the commonest and overall most effective, but there are some other uh, established treatments that are in, in common use and that have um, some good evidence behind them. For example, um, what are called sometimes either oral appliances or mandibular advancement splints. They, these are mouth guard devices that go on the jaw and help pull the jaw forward, and they can help open the airway and reduce both snoring and sleep apnea Um some people will be amenable to upper airway surgery, although mm. um, it, it's, not, it's not something which unfortunately will, will work for everyone. Um, uh, and, uh, and also weight loss can be um, an important factor that will often help um, uh, and, uh, and even body positioning. So they're, they're the major um, established treatments. There are some other things that are, um, uh, you know, undergoing their research and so forth. Uh, something that's available overseas but not in Australia, for example, is um, almost like a pacemaker for the airway muscles where um, the, the muscles activate uh, with each breath overnight to help keep the airway open.
2: Karen, I'll get you to stay on the line for a second just because um, Ted from Hyatt's called in. And, and, Ted, you actually have to use a CPAP machine.
7: Yes over a long period now, because uh, only when I was about uh, 35, 40, that I got onto the machine. I'm now in my 80s, and uh, it, it it matters a lot if you don't use a machine, and even on a bad night that you find hard to sleep, the machine helps in some way. I won't say it's a full kill, but, uh, you know, they try to get me to use it, early, and I, I discouraged But it, I, I think it probably has to do with driving as well. You see, that you might suddenly drop off.
2: <laughs> ah, so. the concerns around that. But and, Ted, was uh, it hard to get used to the machine? Was it hard to c- to get to sleep hard. initially?
7: That's very hard because it's um, not only your condition. Like if you do have a cold or a cough, it, it adds to it, and. Um, uh, you know the moisture that comes from the tank uh, which helps to kind of lubricate and and the sitting of the mask on the face is another thing which you have to probably uh, try time and again with different masks um, now the machines are becoming cheaper and cheaper the resmet is about the best i've used a c-pack as well but uh Uh, You know, hard water matters in making holes in the bottom of the tank. That's another thing. Uh, Concerns
2: around that. that. Yeah, Ted, thanks for calling in. And, and Garen, has there been a lot of movement in those CPAP machines? Have we seen a lot of change over the years? I mean, I imagine them as really big, noisy, clunky machines.
5: Yeah, there's been a a lot of technological development. So uh, CPAP's an Australian invention. Um, A man called Colin Sullivan in in Sydney developed the the concept. And and early on, um, back in the 80s and 90s, they were very big, very loud and very noisy. Um, But now they're they're very small, sophisticated technological devices that are very quiet, that have uh, very sophisticated humidifiers with them to make the treatment more comfortable. Um, and that also can automatically adjust their pressure. So increasingly, the standard machines we use, um, rather than just holding a constant pressure that we have to preset, the machine can track your breathing constantly, move the pressure up and down according to what you require and it can report a lot of statistics back to us as healthcare providers about how the treatment's going. But as Ted Ted also said, that the masks are a really big thing. So having a, a comfortable mask is crucially important to tolerating CPAP well mask technology has evolved and improved over time with more options um getting generally sort of smaller and lighter but there's there's a lot of sometimes for some people trial and error because there's not one universal mask which is is perfect um for for each patient so um so sometimes you do need to trial a few different ones
2: Garen, not to sound ridiculous, but it's also the use of a CPAP machine can be really hard on couples. I mean, obviously, someone needs it to be able to sleep, but they're not—they they don't make for a very nice shared room environment.
5: Uh, Well, uh, it it depends, I suppose, is the answer to that. So, um, if prior to treatment, a big issue for the partner was snoring, disrupting their sleep they're often very happy with um, their partner being on CPAP, um, having the snoring completely resolved, knowing that they're, you know, if they've got severe sleep apnea, their serious condition is well controlled. But, they, you know, it can sometimes go the other way so that sometimes the um, machine itself or air that's blowing out of the mask as the standard escape port can sometimes disturb disturb the partner. So um, th- these are things that we look to try and individualise and make, um, make the treatment as, as comfortable as possible for the person using it and hopefully for the couple in general.
2: Garen, just hold on for one minute too, because Peter from Clifton Springs, uh, Peter, you're a terrible sleeper, but for an absolutely fascinating reason.
0: Yes, uh, well, I've been a ship worker for 45 years, but uh, I've also done uh, four tours to Antarctica and experienced 24 hours darkness, 24 hours daylight, and know the impact that had on my sleep, but it was interesting to see the impact that, that had on um, other people around the station. What, what did it do to your sleep? Well, uh, as winter uh, came upon us, um, people would basically lose the ability to sleep routinely or sleep at all. And uh, in those darkest winter months, um, we would be aware of people getting about their work uh, and just uh, yeah, their social lives and whatever. And we call them things that go bump in the <laughs> night. They basically they'd basically be active uh, through what was uh, by the clock uh, nighttime. And um, you know, go to sleep when the rest of the station were awake. The objective, of course, was to maintain a routine and try and get everybody up at the one time, have breakfast, go to work, um, regular meal times, and then get everybody to bed. But the impact on that artificial, if you want, impact on their life by virtue of um, constant darkness and in summer, constant light was uh, quite an interesting thing to observe in different people, and different people reacted in different ways.
2: Peter, what about you personally? Like, how did you feel day to day?
0: I was lucky in that my work practices or my work requirements were very structured. I had to do certain tasks at certain times of the day, and so there were times when I absolutely had to be awake uh, and other times when I could sleep. So um, in the winter I did have some trouble sleeping and felt felt fatigued and uh, whatever but in summer with the 24 hours daylight I found that I was able to uh, survive and thrive uh, on just a few hours sleep a night. We used to Go and ski until midnight, and then get up at four o'clock in the morning to go to work. And um, you know, just that few, just that few hours sleep um, between midnight four a.m. was enough for for you know, months at a time.
2: Peter, I'm so glad you called in. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Peter in Clifton Springs talking about shift work while in the Antarctic, which is absolutely wild. Caroline in Glen Huntley. Uh, Caroline, you've had some experiences with CPAP machines.
8: Yes, since about... At at this very moment, I'm filling out a questionnaire from the CPAP company. Uh, And I am a war widow, have been for 30 years. And my, I can't remember who told me who to contact how to go about this, but it was about two thousand and ten i think um and the company has a, a i won't name the company on air, mm, but thank the you. company has a contract with uh, DVA, and I don't pay anything
7: right and the so you get a- they,
8: yes, and I would hate to think that a war widow or veteran would not be getting this life-saving equipment because they thought they had to pay and you know these machines are about three grand i would hate to think that someone is not invest you know if they've got sleep apnea or think they have sleep apnea mine is severe um they should they absolutely have to have this life-saving equipment because if your breathing stops it may not restart
2: yeah, Caroline, I'm really glad you were able to find that and find a way uh, to get that for free. As you said, it's an incredibly expensive. It's great to see that people in your situation, veterans as well, I hope, are able to get those CPAP machines without having to pay for it. And many people texting in about this, one texter, a CPAP machine is the best thing ever they're quiet they really really help um Anna saying I don't even hear my husband's CPAP machine and uh, Sam saying they're actually great for your relationship because your partner will stop hating you for snoring so badly Garen in terms of who actually experiences sleep apnea is there any particular demographic more likely to be encountering it is it is it an age-related issue at all?
5: So there are a few things, and look, age is definitely one of the key, uh, key risk factors, so that uh, we know from the epidemiological studies that, um, that we get more sleep apnea, and it becomes more common as we get older. Um, often it presents sort of more typically often in the sort of middle age, but at any age group you can get it. Um, so sort of young adults and, then, and the elderly even um, are at risk and, and can have very high rates. Um, the other key big risk factor um, is is weight gain, um, and, and that often goes along um, as, as we get a bit older that we, we put on a bit of weight and that 's the other sort of key risk factor. in younger people, um, particularly but sometimes in in, in older adults uh, having enlarged tonsils and adenoids, lymph gland tissue in the airways um, uh, is something which can cause obstruction uh and um and that's why in, in young children often re- you know, surgical removal of those is is uh, the, the in general the standard treatment um some children do need cpap but if it's due to tonsils and adenoids they would have that uh removed but uh, it was it was good to hear some people talk about the benefits of cpap because uh it, it, for many people it can be a life-changing therapy um some people can be, be horribly symptomatic from their their sleep apnea and um, and many people who go on to CPAP uh, do get a, a wonderful response. Um, it, unfortunately, not, ev- not everyone, but, but there's certainly a significant proportion of people. So um, uh, it, it is um, uh, a, a wonderful treatment for many
2: Karen, I really appreciate your time today on the show. Garen Hamilton, Director of Sleep Research at Monash University. And, uh, a text there in saying, thank you, Caroline. I am a veteran with sleep apnea. I had no idea the DVA would be able to help me.
1: This is the conversation hour.
2: My name is Nick Healy, filling in for Rochelle for the next few days. And that picture I painted you at the start of the show. Sleep paralysis, your body frozen, malevolent presence in the room. I've actually experienced that a few times in my life. It is jarring. It's a genuinely scary thing to go through. Now, Danny Eckert is director of the Adelaide Institute for Sleep Health. and, And Danny, is sleep paralysis common?
6: Look, it's as you say, it's not uncommon to experience it at some point in your life. Uh, And uh, there are are triggers that can uh, make that more likely to happen. Some, it's quite rare to get it on a regular basis, so single-digit percentages. But, yeah, not uncommon to experience it at some point in our lives.
2: I can't imagine what it would be like regularly. I can literally count the times it's happened to me on one hand, but I remember all of them because of how jarring it was. What is happening when i'm
6: experiencing it why can't i move well it's actually kind of fascinating you know when we go off to sleep it's like a switch um all of a sudden one minute we're technically awake when we're measuring our brain waves and then all of a sudden a a switch is flicked and and we're off to sleep now sometimes that switch gets a little bit sticky so not all of the parts that uh and it kind of flickers between wakefulness and, and sleep so Some parts of our body, and in this case, our muscles have been turned off, which is good. You know, when we go off to sleep, we don't want to be moving around. And so our our muscles relax. Uh, But in in this case, with sleep paralysis, your uh, your brain is still not uh, fully asleep, um, but your muscles are. So uh, hence, we can't move. And it feels, yeah, it can be quite scary at times if you don't know what's going on. So why
2: then am i how have I got this perception that there's someone or something in the room with me? I mean, the experience of dread is wild
6: yeah, and that that's quite a common association with this with this phenomenon and mm. uh, yeah and as you can imagine, if you're a, a young or a teenager or yeah you don't know what's going on um it can be alarming you, you, you you're conscious you're aware that you're awake but you cannot move uh not not a great sensation and hence some fear can uh, can be associated with that and uh yeah it's it's um and i guess the key is knowing what this is and uh and and how to prevent it can be uh can be useful
2: i'll dive into that in a second but danny you're saying that my experience of this presence in the room is actually my brain trying to make sense of the fear
6: look a a little bit we don't know exactly why there is that sort of um often associated that sense of doom or fear associated with uh what you're describing we do know that it is quite common what you've just described so yeah it isn't you know the, the body is not working as it should at that moment so uh you know that that switch as i described earlier is not fully switched over to uh to turning the brain and the muscles off at the same time and and, and hence there's these, uh, yeah, you're you're in between worlds, if you like, wakefulness and sleep.
2: Is it related, uh, sorry, I'm just getting myself a bit excited, is it a bit related to the myoclonic twitch when your arm or your leg kind of jerks you awake?
6: Oh, look, that might be a different phenomenon. So there's also um, restless leg movements and other motions that can can happen but but probably not unrelated to the the general concept of um you know the the, the body uh having in uh, yeah not being fully uh, asleep all the way through so uh yeah it's it's this something about the the sleep wake switch is not working properly uh and and but there's other reasons that you can have sort of movements during sleep as well
2: so, staying on sleep paralysis, you mentioned that there are ways to kind of be aware of it and treat it. What what do we do? I mean, how do we start saying this is something I need to work on and how do we work on it?
6: Yeah, look, typically uh, there's no uh, recommended therapy for this, um, but w- there are some things you can do. So... You know, you're more likely to have these sleep paralysis episodes if someone, you know, a family member has it. Uh, And in particular, a major trigger is if you're not getting enough sleep. So if you're sleep-deprived or you've got a Irregular sleep pattern, that is, you're a shift worker or something. Um, our, our bodies love routine, and, and, mm. and absolutely that's the case for sleep. So, th- if we're not getting enough sleep or it's at a different time against our sort of body clock, you're more likely to get these episodes. So, you know, there's something, you, you know, we can do to, to a certain extent is to sort of prioritize, make sure we're getting enough sleep to, uh, to uh, avoid. Um, for some reason, we don't quite know why this is when people sleep on their back. Um, you tend to get more um, of these episodes than when you're on your side. Um, now, that might be related to other conditions, such as sleep apnea that we've just heard about. It tends to be worse on your back, so the airway might be closing off, and that might, um, you know, cause some parts of your body to wake up and not others. Um, so that but that's we don't know that for sure. And and certainly stress and certain medications, um, anti-anxiety and medications in particular. Can make these episodes more common, uh, and of course, if you've got another sleep disorder such as narcolepsy, uh, where you have you know trouble falling asleep uncontrollably, this sleep these sleep paralysis episodes are not in uncommon there. So, you know, these are the sort of things that can cause uh, this to occur, um, and hence, you know, prioritising sleep, getting enough uh, time for sleep, trying to reduce those uh, stress can all help sort of alleviate these uh, these issues.
2: At the risk of sounding stupid, when you are actually experiencing sleep paralysis, is there a way to snap yourself out of it or do you have to ride it through?
6: <laughs> Look, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I've had these myself, so I know exactly yeah. what we're, we're talking about. And, um I, uh, thankfully as a sleep researcher, I knew exactly what it was and, uh, I could, I could make sense of it and, uh, I, I was rather calm and just, and knew that it would pass. So that is the way to deal with it. But can you snap yourself out of it? Uh, not sure. I, I, it is probably <laughs> one of those things if you sort of ride it through a bit more than, um, than, uh, actively alert it and, and just wait for your brain to, uh, to catch up and, and get those muscles working again because I've,
2: I've tried to snap myself out of it and I knew what it was from my psychology degree I remember studying it as part of sleep disorders in that but I was trying to roll my wrist or just make any part of me move in the hope that that would kind of switch it all into gear and it was still just absolutely mm-hmm. horrifying I couldn't make it happen. Yeah, Routine and circadian rhythms have come up a lot in today's chat is it true that we all sort of have a slightly different one in terms of when we are going to want to sleep? Not necessarily the hours but what feels like a Natural
6: bedtime? Yeah, look, it is, and um, to some extent, it can be driven by our work pressures and, and life. Um, you know, we are a twenty-four-hour society now, and, and fifteen to twenty percent of our population are shift workers and, and, and working at um, you know irregular times. So, but yes, in general, there are some of us that are sort of night hours and then there are the, the marks and. Um, there is some biology behind that that might predispose you to one or the other, and as it turns out, that's you know associated with different different health effects. So, um, you know, on average, if you, you you tend to be more of a night hour, that's associated with uh, more adverse mental health consequences than our uh, right. folks that uh, bounce out of bed early, yeah, and go off to is- bed early. Is that
2: just because you're trying to fit a, a, a night owl biorhythm into a, a, a standard work day, or is it more profound than that, do we think?
6: Well, look, there's, there's different reasons. Um, we, we certainly know that um, we can regulate that body clock uh, with light uh, very successfully and things like melatonin to get it back on track. Um, so there is, there is the option of... of uh, moving our body clocks around to fit in with um, what what the individual uh, wants to be working at. Now, of course, when you're bouncing around from shift work to trying to um, function at regular times, that becomes more challenging to because these systems don't move quickly. You know, they take days oh, yeah. rather than being able to move just like that. So and we've all experienced that at one stage and another with jet lag, of course, where, <laughs> you know, then take four, five, six, seven days to get back onto the, to the time zone Uh, and that's all because of our slow body clocks.
2: Danny Eckhart this has been absolutely fascinating and thank you so much. Danny's the director of the Adelaide Institute for Sleep Health. Thank you for all your calls and texts. Uh, Time for me to say goodbye. Tomorrow we are taking a snapshot of the health of regional and rural schools. What's it like to go to one? What's it like to work on one?